The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Looking at his disciples, Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. The Gospel of the Lord. One unique thing about being British is the attitude that many of us have towards winning, especially winning at sport. Until quite recently, it was part of the UK DNA, passed from one generation to the next, that taking part was more important than coming first. Ladies and gentlemen should try their hardest, but not be so vulgar as to beat anyone. Countries that won were viewed as show-offs uh, and not being sporting. So while the United States and the Soviet Union slash Russia have won about a third more gold medals in the Olympics than silver medals, Britain proudly boasts an all-time Olympic tally of way more silvers than golds. Winning was all rather unseemly. Things have changed, though. In July, England won the Cricket World Cup for the first time. This is really letting the side down. I think it's all about guilt and fairness. Uh, the British have so much to be guilty about that I think there's this psychological need to let others get their own back, a kind of masochistic sense of self-play. Uh, sorry about that whole empire thing, now please humiliate us on the sports field and we can call it even. <laughs> the British have this uh, charming but profoundly frustrating belief that life should be fair. So combine this sense of fair play with this new desire to win and you get a very British but very unfortunate outcome. 
the idea of deserving to win, but actually losing. If you Google the phrase, we deserved to win, you'll discover that the people who usually say this are on British websites, not American ones. In the US, there's this admirable belief that if you won, you deserved to, and if you lost, you deserved to. By contrast, a British soccer fan will believe that because his team had 80% of possession and had 20 shots on goal compared to the opponent's two shots on goal, his team deserves to win. And they'd be right if football matches were decided on the number of shots a team has. But they're not. They're decided on the number of goals you score. And if you fail to score with your chances and the other team scores with just one of their two chances, then you deserve to lose. Harsh but true and blindingly obvious to American sports fans. And the tragic result of this is that the British sports fan not only has to shoulder the pain of losing, she often carries the added heartbreak that a terrible justice has occurred thereby making it almost impossible for her to move on. Things in the US are much simpler. We lost, accept it, learn from the experience, and prepare to win next time. If you can't accept that life is unfair, then you are going to struggle in this world. If you can't live with the idea that people suffer when they don't deserve it, then you are going to feel perpetual anger. If you can't rest with the knowledge that evil actions go unpunished, then you will have the joy strangled out of you. If you live by the motto that everyone receives what they deserve, not only will you be permanently frustrated, you will reject and resent the instructions of Jesus in tonight's Gospel lesson. But I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on one cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. If anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. As someone once said, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that trouble me, it's the parts I do understand. Because that vision of human life that Jesus dreams of is the average person's worst nightmare. That vision is not so much all saints, but Halloween. It's a dream world where I don't insist on the justice I deserve, where I'm slapped on one cheek and offer the other one, where someone steals my coat and I give them my sweater, where I'm manipulated and go right back to where it can happen again. This dream world is malice in Wonderland. In this movie, instead of Liam Neeson pursuing revenge with single-minded obsession, people receive the slings and arrows of this world with acceptance and peace, without the need to lash out 
act up or strike back? Is this just a dream world? An imaginary utopia hatched in the mind of Jesus? Or can it be a real place? The choice is ours. Now the phrase, turn the other cheek, has passed into our everyday speech. The way it's often used, it's another way of saying that we ignore it when someone insults us or hurts us in some way. Uh, so and so wrote me a nasty email, but I hit delete without replying. I ignored it. I looked away. I turned the other cheek. And refusing to be provoked and retaliate is absolutely a good and Christian response to being hurt in some way. But it's not what Jesus meant when he invented the phrase. Jesus is not merely saying, ignore it when someone hurts you. He is saying, invite that person to do it again. That's the meaning. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, then offer them the left one too. Allow them to slap that side. This is not just ignoring the offensive gesture and breaking off contact with the perpetrator. This is remaining engaged with them, even if that means opening yourself to further hurt. This is amazing. Now, here comes the Surgeon General's health warning on this sermon. I don't believe Jesus had in mind situations where there is abuse in a relationship. If he were talking to someone enduring a physically violent relationship, he would not advise just taking the punches and remaining in the home where it will happen again. I believe Jesus' compassion would want to rescue that person from harm. If someone is literally being hit, sure, there is forgiveness, but there is also justice and self-protection. So let's read the phrase, turn the other cheek, as a figure of speech, not as a literal instruction. The slap on the cheek is the hurtful gesture. The thoughtless words, the unkind action, the stuff, in other words, of everyday relationships, in the home, at the workplace, even the church committee meeting. When the hurtful word or gesture come this week, as they surely will, how will you respond? Will you break off contact, give the person the cold shoulder, become defensive, give as you've received, state that the culprit doesn't deserve your grace, or will you remain engaged, stay in the relationship, work it out with forgiveness and determination? Will you give an eye for an eye or turn the other cheek? Remaining engaged at the risk of being hurt again. Face it, if we're not prepared to live this way, then what chance do we have of living in intimate relationships with each other as a church or as families? 
In all our relationships, we can either insist on our rights and demand our just desserts, or we can have loving intimacy. But I don't think we can have both. The standard that Christ calls his followers to doesn't keep records. The way we look at our relationships should not be based on our rights. Sure, if someone hurts us, we have every right to get our own back. If we do others the harm they have done to us, we are being fair. We are giving them what they deserve. There's a warped sense of justice about it, but it is not what Christ modelled. He who was led like a lamb to the slaughter and did not utter a word in protest. So at the heart of Jesus' instructions to turn the other cheek is the question, are you willing to receive what you don't deserve? Do you deserve to be treated unfairly, to be hurt, insulted, rejected? No, you don't. God made you in his own image. Every one of us is made with dignity and the beauty of God. You deserve to be treated well, to be admired and loved and respected. It is your birthright as a child of God. So how about this for a definition of forgiveness? Accept being treated in a way you don't deserve. So, I'm downsizing my vocabulary. I've decided that looking at my circumstances and labelling them deserved or undeserved is a waste of time. If I simply ignore the concept of deserved and undeserved, then I'd be freer to accept each day as it comes and receive its gifts. And that may help me forgive my enemies more easily. So I'm getting rid of words like deserving and undeserving, and I'm also throwing out words like good and bad when I use them to describe the events that happen to me, because how do I know what's good and bad? In an old Chinese story, a farmer buys a horse to help him plough. That's good news, his neighbour tells him. The farmer replies, good news or bad news? Who can say? A week later, the horse runs away. His neighbour says, that's bad news. The farmer replies, good news or bad news? Who can say? A week after that, the horse returns and brings along another horse. Good news, says the neighbour. The farmer replies, who can say? The farmer gives the second horse to his son, but the horse throws him and he badly breaks his leg. The concerned neighbour goes next door and says, I'm so sorry for your bad news. Good news, bad news, who can say? The farmer replies. The next day, the emperor declares war with a neighbouring country and officials go throughout the country taking every able-bodied and to fight. The farmer's son is spared. Many times in my life, especially when I've lost something dear to me, I've described that event as bad. 
and many times I've labelled events that have made me happy as good. Then, years later, I've seen that the event I thought was bad led me to beautiful things I could not foresee at that time, and the so-called good events stunted my personal growth. So if we are to love our enemies and turn the other cheek, maybe we should downsize our dictionaries, remove deserving, and refuse to call events bad or good. I think it would be liberating, and maybe we'd find it easier to turn the other cheek and love our enemies. Amen.